Now, as we come to Galatians chapter 5, we're really ending a section of the book of Galatians. Paul wrote his letters mostly in two parts. You see this pattern throughout the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. The first part of the letter is more theological, if you will. It's filled with teaching us the right way to think about God, about ourselves, and about the life that God wants us to live. God always wants us to build our lives on the right kind of thinking. And so first, in Paul's letters, he he deals with with the, the, the way we should think before the Lord. But then after that, he also has a beautiful way of coming down and speaking to us very practically about the ways to carry that out and how to live consistent with that thinking. That part we'll begin with next week. But in the first 12 verses of Galatians chapter 5, we sort of conclude this extended section that Paul's been on since the beginning of the book, where he's talking to us still about how we should think and how we should approach the Christian life in the right frame of mind. It's a a very powerful passage. I don't know about you, but I, I like to really kind of picture what's happening in the Bible as I read it. And of course, as as you read a passage like Galatians chapter 5, what's happening as it was happening was, well, Paul was writing a letter. That doesn't seem very exciting, does it? Actually, Paul wasn't writing it. He was dictating it. That's how they would do it in the ancient world. Paul would speak and somebody else, a scribe, would write down the letter. You even find evidence of this in in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Just look at it there for a moment. He says, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. In other words, beginning at verse 11, Paul takes the the pen from the hand of the scribe and he starts writing himself. And he's making a comment on how big his letters are. This has led some people to perhaps think that Paul had bad eyesight and he had to make his letters very big. But all previous to that in the letter, Paul's dictating. And I can just see Paul pacing back and forth. And you know how it is if you're doing a little letter or dictating or talking, you get worked up, don't you? By the end of this passage that we're going to take a look at, verses 1 through 12, Paul's going to be practically foaming at the mouth in excitement, in in passion over what he's saying. But you get a hint of this right here at verse 1, Galatians chapter 5, where he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You notice this, first of all, Paul talks about the liberty, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ as a fact. That's how it is, my friends. Jesus Christ has set us free. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, If, as the Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians, you are a new creature in Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ has set you free. He's given you liberty. You have that freedom. Whether or not you walk in that freedom is up to you. Whether or not you think in that freedom is up to you. But he set you free. That's the fact of the matter. Look at it again in verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He's done it. Now walk in it. Stand fast in it. It's a curious thing that happens to prisoners who have had an extended time in prison. Oftentimes, when a prisoner has been held for several years, and then eventually they're free, they still think like a prisoner, even though they've been set free. 
They still act like a prisoner, even though they've been set free. And oftentimes it takes a radical change for a person who has been in prison for a long time to actually think and act like a free man once they're outside of that prison. It's the same way in our Christian life. Jesus Christ has set us free. But do we live it? Do we think like it? That's why Paul says with such passion, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Now, there's something else that's important. He talks about this liberty having a source. Did you notice it in verse 1? By which Christ has made us free. You didn't make yourself free. It wasn't your own good idea. It wasn't through your own efforts. It wasn't through your own brilliance. Each and every one of us, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, it's because Jesus Christ has set us free. Trying to set ourselves free just puts us back into more and more bondage. So this liberty has a fact, it has a source, Then, if you notice too, it's distinctive. This is a very important word that he uses here in verse 1, and he uses it in the original language that he wrote in as well, not just in our English versions. Verse 1, he says, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. In other words, it's a distinctive liberty. He doesn't just say stand fast therefore in liberty in a very general or broad sense. As Paul speaks of it here to the Galatians and to us, he wants to make it very clear that he's talking about a distinctive liberty, a particular liberty, the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? Oh, I think that the Holy Spirit was so marvelously guiding the hand of Paul or guiding his voice as he spoke to the scribe as this was being put down on parchment. I think this was so inspired of the Holy Spirit for right now in our own day and age. Because we as Americans in our culture, we're really into liberty, aren't we? We're really into personal freedom. Boy, it's the old uh, Western ideal, you know, don't fence me in. I want to do whatever I want to do. You know, it's my way. It's liberty means, freedom means doing whatever I want. And for a lot of people in our culture and the way we generally think, that means if it feels good, do it. It means Never saying no to a desire. Never saying no to something that you want. That's liberty, isn't it? That's freedom. I'll do whatever I want to do. Do you realize that if you can't say no to yourself, then you don't have much liberty at all. You're a slave to your own appetites, to your own desires. No, the modern American idea of liberty, of freedom, is that we should be able to do whatever we want, As often as we want, whenever we want, nobody sets any rules, nobody sets any boundaries for us. We think that's freedom. Can I tell you, that's not the liberty that Paul's talking about here. When he talks about the liberty by which Christ has set us free, he's talking about the liberty that Jesus Christ has given us. That's a liberty from the tyranny of having to earn our own way before God. It's liberty and freedom from sin and guilt and condemnation. It's freedom from the penalty and the power and eventually from the presence of sin. It's freedom from the tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's freedom. That's liberty. And so that's why Paul makes it specific here in verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Or else, or else what? Look at it there at the end of verse 1. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There's your options right here. The liberty that Jesus gives, 
or being entangled again in a yoke of bondage. You feel those straps around you, tangling you? They're wrapping around your legs. You can't make progress. They're wrapping around your arms. You're not free to move. It's even constricting how you breathe. It's a yoke of bondage, and it's entangling you. That's the option if you won't be free in Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage? Simply what he's speaking about is this idea of the law being a yoke that we can't bear. Now, you know what he means by a yoke. Not a Y-O-L-K, you know, the yellow part of an egg. No, he's talking about a yoke, a Y-O-K-E, which is sort of a a wooden harness that's put upon an oxen or some other kind of cattle as they use the plow and drive the plow. It binds them, it restricts them, it directs them in a certain way. It's a burden that they have to wear. Can you imagine how happy the ox is to have that yoke taken off of him at the end of the day? That means the day of work is done. He can rest now. He can have peace. He can, he can have a, a sense of accomplishment instead of having knowing that the work is completed. No. No, we try hard to pull God's plow. But Jesus says, no, I've done the work for you. That The yoke of bondage is going to leave you tangled, restricted, and frustrated. Find that place of freedom. Find that place of, of liberty. So that's the challenge to us here. Verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now he continues on in verse 2, indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Isn't that a radical statement? Now, let's understand very clearly what Paul's talking about. He doesn't say, he doesn't mean, I should say, that if you're circumcised, Jesus Christ is no good to you. If you're uncircumcised, then you can go to heaven. You know how we know Paul's not saying this. First of all, because of what he says later on in the chapter. Secondly, because Paul himself was a circumcised man. What he's talking about in this passage has to do with accepting circumcision as the entry point into coming under the law of Moses. You could just translate it. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you come under the law of Moses... Christ will profit you nothing. Nothing. When we embrace the law as our rule of walking with God, then you let go of Jesus. Embrace the law, let go of Jesus. He is no longer our righteousness. We're attempting to earn it ourselves. And so for the Galatians, in this context, to receive circumcision, the ritual that testified that a Gentile was coming under the law, it meant that he no longer trusted in Jesus for his salvation. No, Now he was trusting in what he could do for his salvation. Let me translate it another way for you. How about this? Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you come under the Sabbath, Christ will profit you nothing. That's a law, that's a regulation that some people present to us today. They say this is what you have to do to be accepted by God. This is a law that you have to come under. Paul says, no, you do that. You're trusting in your Sabbath keeping to approve you before God? Then Christ profits you nothing. And you could put any other kind of ritual observance there. If you're trusting in a ritual observance, Christ will profit you nothing. Friends, do you understand the strength of that statement? 
The tragedy of it, there's Jesus dying on the cross, pouring out his blood, his life, his soul, his agony, his love for us. And it profits you nothing. Nothing. Think of it there, on the day Jesus died, two men died with him. Two thieves, one on either side of his outstretched arms. And one of them put their trust in Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. For him, the death of Jesus profited him something. And then there's another one who simply cursed and reviled Jesus. For him, the death of Jesus profited him nothing. There he was, inches or or just a few feet away from eternal salvation. Jesus Christ dying right next to him and it profited him nothing, nothing. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing to come so close, so close? You see the death of Jesus. You know the death of Jesus. You understand the work that he did for for you on the cross, but yet you don't put your trust in that. Instead, you put your trust in what you can do. And so what Jesus did profits you nothing. Look how Paul continues on the point here in verse 3, where he says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. That's another very strong statement, isn't it? Paul says, you come under the law of Moses. You you come under this law of circumcision. He goes, you know what happens to you? You are now a debtor to keep the whole law. Now, that's not how the legalists presented it, was it? They presented it as, well, just receive circumcision. That'll be good enough. No, no, it's not good enough. If you want to be righteous on the basis of the law, then you've got to keep the whole law. You know, the... Jewish rabbis of of that day and even of our current day, they went through the books of Moses, the law of Moses, and they counted up the laws. They counted up the commands. 613 commands they counted from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. That's what you had to keep if you want to be righteous by the law. Not just one law, not just one command having to do with circumcision. 613. In for a penny, in for a pound. You want to be righteous by the way of the law? That's what it takes. All 613, you are a debtor to keep the whole law. You say, well, how about if I just keep most of them? No, no. You see, when it comes to making ourselves justified by law keeping, no amount of obedience makes up for one disobedience. Let me say that again. No amount of obedience makes up for even one disobedience. Let me explain the principle to you. You're driving down the road. You leave church here this, this afternoon, and you're driving home, and you're speeding on the freeway. Let's say 57 miles an hour, right? Over the speed limit. And there you are all of a sudden. You look in your rearview mirror, and the lights are flashing, and you get that sinking feeling in your stomach. Don't you hate that? And the officer comes up and walks up to your car and he says, Hi, I'm sorry, I clocked you. I got you going 57 miles an hour. The, the speed limit's 55 here. You were speeding. I got to write you up for a ticket. And you say, Officer, officer, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The officer, I'm a good husband. I'm a faithful man. I do a great work at my job. I go to church every Sunday. I, I, I'm a good taxpayer. Officer, I observe the speed limit all the time. I drive this section of freeway every day. And I'm obedient to the, to the speed limit all the time, except for this one time. Now surely all my obedience will cancel out this one act of disobedience. You know what the officer will say? He'll say, sign here. That's what he'll say. <laughs> because it doesn't make any difference, right? 
He's not concerned with every time you obeyed the speed limit before that. His concern is with the one time you were disobedient, he caught you. You could say, oh, what a great person. It doesn't matter. Friends, it's the same way before the law of God. If you want to be justified by keeping the law of God, and if you keep 612 of those commandments, then the 613th one that you did not keep will be enough to condemn you. Because you have to keep the whole law. So again, Paul is making it clear. He says, verse 3, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. And then look at verse 4. He says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. Do you get this? This is talking about spiritual disaster. You're going to fall from grace. Grace is that place of acceptance and approval and the favor of God. And he says, you're coming with your legalistic attitude, with your legalistic heart. You're going to fall from God's grace. You see, a lot of times the seductive nature of legalism is where it comes along and it seeks to just add itself to our life. But legalism, spiritually speaking, is like a cancer. Cancer comes into your body. And it attaches itself to an organ. And that cancer might say, hey, look, we don't want to ruin anything. We just want to live here for a while. We'll just live with you. You can do your own thing. We'll just live with you. That's not the way cancer works, right? It's programmed to take over. And pretty soon, it's taking over the body to where cancer and that healthy body cannot long coexist. It's one or the other. Either you cut out the cancer or you cut out the healthy body. That's all there is to it. It's the same way with legalism. That's why Paul says here in verse 4 with such passion, you become estranged from Christ. You're separated from him. You're trusting in legalism, what you can do from God. You're becoming separated from Jesus. And then he says, you're justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Isn't that an interesting phrase he uses there? Some of you may not have even known that that phrase was in the Bible, fallen from grace, or to fall from grace. And what's very interesting is the way that that uh, phrase is commonly used in our culture and in our thinking today is very different from how Paul means it here. The way we usually mean it today is someone falls from grace when they slip into some kind of moral scandal, right? Now there's the politician, he got caught up in a moral scandal, and oh, he fell from grace. Do you understand that that's not what Paul's talking about at all? He's not talking about slipping into moral scandal. Paul is talking about not trusting in Jesus anymore for your salvation and trusting instead in what you can do. We always think that if somebody falls away from the Lord, that you're going to notice it in some notorious, horrible immorality. No, not always. Their heart can just turn in pride and start looking to themselves instead of to Jesus. And they've fallen from grace, even though outwardly their life looks fine. Friends, that's the issue. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done to save you? Or are you trusting in what you can do to save yourself? Friends, we're not saved by our good conduct, right? then we're not unsaved by our immoral conduct. No, if somebody falls away, they've fallen away from grace. They're falling away from their trust in Jesus Christ. And somebody can fall from grace and be damned without ever falling into grossly immoral conduct. I want you to understand something. When we sin, we don't necessarily fall from grace. 
Matter of fact, who is the grace of God extended to? To sinners. If we recognize our sin and repent of our sin, then our sin makes us fall into grace, not from it. There's nobody going to be excluded from the kingdom of God because they were too sinful that Jesus Christ couldn't fix their sin problem. No. It's because they trusted in their own way to fix it instead of trusting in Jesus' way. Friends, it's a very important point. I think Paul writes this with such passion because he, he thinks with a pastor's heart, with a pastor's mind. He thinks of the faces of the people that he led to the Lord, the people in that congregation. And as he looks out over it, he thinks, wouldn't it be a tragedy? Wouldn't it be a spiritual disaster if somebody came to church week after week? But all the while they were trusting in themselves. Maybe they were trusting in their own church attendance to save them. Right? God's got the chart. God's got the scorecard up in heaven. And he puts a gold star on it every time I go to church. Oh, and if I get enough gold stars on my chart, then I'm going to heaven for sure. So, you know, through this uh, spiritual or, or, or religious observation, oh, he puts another gold star, and I did something good here, and he puts a gold star, and, oh, I need to fill up my chart full of gold stars. God says you'll never make that chart full enough, never. He says, look to what Jesus Christ has done. Here's Jesus' chart, and it's solid gold. He says, here, I'll give you his chart. Just trust in him. To do otherwise is to fall from grace. And Paul thinks, he goes, somebody might come to church week after week and not have this clear in their mind. Their very attendance at church could be something that they trust in to save them instead of trusting in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Friends, Paul is so passionate about this. Now in verse Four, he kind of, uh, excuse me, verse 5, he, he begins to, to bring about the way of faith here and show it. He, he says in verse 5, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In other words, we're not working for righteousness, we're receiving it, we're waiting it. We're not earning it, we're receiving it as God's gift by faith. And how are we doing it? Look at it there in verse 5. For we through the Spirit do it. Oh, isn't that glorious? Nobody is a legalist by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead anybody into legalism. He may lead a person into obedience, but obedience isn't legalism. No, legalism is when we trust in what we do to make us approved before God. And he says, no, we're different. We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Wasn't that a glorious passage right there? You get what his point is? He looks over at the congregation there, and some come from a Jewish background and are circumcised, and some come from a Gentile background and they're not circumcised. And you know what Paul says? He goes, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Circumcised, who cares? Uncircumcised, who cares? What matters? Look at it there in verse 6. But faith working through love. That's what matters. You know, you could say it the same way today. We talked about the issue of the Sabbath before. How about if we read this verse in verse 6? For in Christ Jesus, neither Sabbath-keeping nor not Sabbath-keeping matters anything but faith working through love. How about if we said that? You want to keep the Sabbath? Praise God. Keep it unto God. doesn't make you any more right before Him. You don't want to keep it? Praise God. Then make every day separate and set apart to Jesus. Great. 
The bottom line, it's irrelevant. That's between you and the Lord, but it doesn't have to do with your salvation. It doesn't have to do with your standing before God. What matters with your standing before God? Oh, I love it. Verse 6, faith working through love. That's what does matter. I love the combination there, don't you? Faith, right? You've got to have faith, but it must be faith working through love. Now, some people just want to have faith, right? And sometimes they mean that in the very intellectual sense. They believe all the right facts about God and the Bible and Jesus Christ, right? You, you, you may know all the facts. Yes, I, I believe Jesus walked this earth. I believe he healed a lot of people. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. And, and you have the right facts in mind. Boy, if there was ever a, a Bible trivia contest, you'd do pretty good. You know the right answers to the questions. But that's all it is. It's just facts up in your head. That's not enough. He says, faith, look at it there in verse 6, working, that means faith doing something. Working what? Working through love. Faith isn't real. Faith isn't saving faith unless it's faith that's doing something and doing it through love. Might I say too that I think it's beautiful that Paul says there in verse 6 that love alone isn't enough. You might be here this morning and say, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. That's not enough. You've got to have the right facts, too. You've got to have faith working through love. Have the facts. Put it to work through love. Isn't that beautiful? Faith working through love. That's a beautiful definition of what real faith, of what real trust is, an abiding trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now in verses 7 through 12, he wraps it up with a final confrontation here and just sense the passion of the Apostle Paul in this. He says, you, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. What a dramatic, shocking almost conclusion to what Paul's saying here. See how he begins there in verse 7? He says, you ran well. Paul says, I remember how you used to go with the Lord. You started off good. You ran well. You got off to a good start. Paul pictures himself, and there he is. He's like holding the starter's gun as these people beginning their, their Christian life, right? And he, he pulls the trigger, and they hear the bang, and there they go. They're off. They're off. They're, they're running the race. You ran well, but then something happened, right? Somebody put roadblocks and broke up the road in front of them. Verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Something happened along the way. You got some wrong teaching, some wrong doctrine. You started trusting in yourself. People said, well, if you really want to walk with God, then you've got to be circumcised. You've got to come under the law of Moses. No, you started well, but now look at how you're hindered. And then he says, this persuasion, verse 8, it does not come from him who calls you. It wasn't Jesus. Jesus called you. But it wasn't him who put those roadblocks in the way. It wasn't Jesus who persuaded you along this way. No, it was somebody else. And then verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This corruption, this legalism, it's come in. Now it's going to spread throughout the whole church. Just a little bit is going to infect a lot. You know what he means by leaven, don't you? He means yeast. Although in the ancient world, it wasn't like the kind of yeast you use today. No, it wasn't sold in a little foil packet or a little cube. No. 
What they used for yeast in the ancient world was what we use when we think of sourdough bread. You know, to, to bring the sourdough effect into a, a, a lump of bread, you just take a pinch from an old sourdough loaf and put it in there, and the, the fermentation spreads throughout the whole loaf of bread, doesn't it? The whole, the whole lump of dough, I should say. And so as it spreads forth from there, one little bit affects the whole lump. That's what Paul's saying. This one little bit of legalism, it's going to affect the whole church and affect it in a very, very terrible way. Then in verse 10, he expresses his confidence, how, how he wants to encourage them. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. And then he, he gets down to the business here at the end of verse 10. He who troubles you shall bear his judgment. The people who are bringing in this dangerous teaching, God's going to hold them to account. God's going to hold them to judgment, whoever they are. It doesn't matter how high and how mighty they are. God is still going to hold them to account And he says in verse 11 about how he's preaching the cross and how he won't give up the offense of the cross. He's not going to go to this legalistic attitude just because other people want him to and other people are persecuting him in that direction. And then he concludes, and this is where I mean, Paul, well, you know, the little handout that is in your bulletin, sort of a note thing through the text that we're going through this morning. I almost felt like titling this point in verse 12. Paul goes off the deep end. Because he's put in verse 12 about as strong as he could. He says there in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now what he means by that is he means that these people who are preaching circumcision, this cutting away of the flesh, they should just cut the whole thing off, he says. That's exactly what he means. That's how passionate Paul is about this. He goes, if they're so into cutting, then, then let them just cut all the way. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, there, there's really two ideas behind it. First of all, believe it or not, that was a common practice among some of the pagan priests in Paul's day in that very region of Galatia. They would do that. And so what Paul's saying is, they may as well be like the pagans. Friends, if you're not going to trust in Jesus for your salvation, then you may as well be as the pagans. You may as well. They're trusting in their good works. You're trusting in your good works. The difference comes in trusting in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Then the other aspect that Paul's alluding to this is that those who were mutilated in that way, Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 specifically says that they were excluded from the congregation of the Lord. And so when Paul makes the kind of heavy statement he makes in verse 12, He's saying they're acting like pagans and they should be excluded from the congregation of the Lord. They may as well go all the way since they've departed from this basic trust in Jesus. And with such a dramatic conclusion to this point, Paul has made one thing clear. Friends, I want it to be impressed deeply on our hearts. Legalism is no little thing. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. You need to look inside your heart and ask God to probe deeply, to shine His searchlight within you. Are you trying to justify yourself before God by what you've done, by what you're doing, what you promise you will do? Or are you receiving what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf as the ground of your relationship with God? Legalism is no little thing. 
Just in this chapter, look at all the points you could draw of how serious legalism is, beginning all the way back from verse 1. Liberty, or excuse me, legalism takes away our liberty and it puts us into bondage. Legalism makes Jesus and his work of no profit to us. Legalism puts us under obligation to the whole law. Legalism violates the work of the Spirit of God. It makes us focus on things that are irrelevant. It keeps us from running the race that Jesus set before us. Legalism, plainly speaking, it just isn't from Jesus. A little bit of it will infect an entire church, and those who promote legalism will face certain judgment, no matter who they are. And legalism, trying to take away the offense of the cross, takes away the glory of the cross. This is no little thing. And your eternal destiny rides on it. I can't help but think of it as we... Conclude with verse 12 there. What a serious issue facing us this is. How serious it is for each and every one of us to have it established in our heart that we're not trusting in what we've done, in what we're doing, or what we promise to do before God to make us right before him or to keep us right. No, it's in what Jesus Christ has done. The difference is between the relationship you can have with God and the religion of man. The religion of man can never save you. But a relationship with God, that can save you. You know what the glorious thing about it, if we bring it back to verse 1? The freedom that you have in Jesus. When you live in the liberty that there comes from this faith, trusting, loving relationship with God, oh, what freedom, oh, what liberty. You're freed from the tyranny of looking at yourself. And now you can look to Jesus and look to loving other people. What liberty that is. I'm wondering if God doesn't want to set some people free this morning. Set them free from that tyranny of trying to save themselves. And put their focus on the salvation that Jesus Christ has given them. Let's pray to that end right now.